Luke 5, beginning in verse 33. Hear the word of Almighty God. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise, those of the Pharisees, but yours, eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new one does not match the old. And no one puts a new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new. For he says the old is better so far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask for wisdom and discernment with these things. That here we would not only hear Christ's words long ago, but understand what he would say to his church today, to us, for our daily life and discipleship. So give us wisdom, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to say something at the beginning that really is something I was going to say at the end of the sermon, but I, I'd rather say it twice and not have you trying to figure me out as, as we go. I think we often look at our current passage as, a, as merely a question about fasting in general. But I think as we look at the passage, we need to be thinking about fasting, which is a, an, a frequent part of the daily or weekly routine of the disciple. And you'll understand why I make that distinction, I hope, as we move forward in this sermon. But By making a distinction like that, I think we help ourselves better understand what Christ is saying. Notice that the question is not why the disciples never fast at all, but why they're not fasting often. So I I want to draw us back to that. I think many interpret this uh, wrongly or make wrong conclusions from things said here for a number of reasons one of which is missingly often. And um, I think Puritans and Pietists and some Reformed, we can be the worst for that. And so I, I want us to take this seriously and slowly and think about what is being said by our Savior here. Here we find, uh, coming right off of recording for us, Luke saying that the Pharisees and the scribes have an issue with Jesus, because he and his disciples are eating with tax collectors and sinners. There was a big old party 
And then he account, records for us this question of fasting. And as we look at Matthew and Mark, it, it seems probable that this actual encounter about fasting took place later on in Christ's ministry. But Luke is really trying to emphasize something for us here by placing it right next to Christ saying that he came to be with sinners and to call them to repentance. Where Christ is critiqued for being at a big party thrown by a tax collector. And why would he live a life where his weekly routine includes having parties, being a guest at flippant celebrations of food and drink and friendship when there are others who don't let their weeks be so ordered. And so here come the the Pharisees asking this question of our Savior. They ask, Why do the disciples of John the Baptist fast often? And why do the disciples of the Pharisees fast often? And here are your disciples eating with that guy, Matthew, and his friends. Being found with, feasting with women like Mary Magdalene. We know who she was and what she did. And here we are fasting. And you're feasting. What's up with that, Jesus? What, what is your defense of that? How could you possibly defend that? As we think about this challenge to Christ, I think first we should be asking ourselves, why do the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast frequently? Why do these two groups of disciples fast frequently? And I think we could break it down to two reasons why this was a frequent practice. I'm going to vaguely categorize it under the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, but we should understand that the motives of individuals within those two groups might, uh, might align more with the other group. In other words, there might be a Pharisee who's fasting for the same reason that most of John's disciples fast. And there might be some of John's disciples who are hypocrites and fast like the Pharisees. But we'll generally take them group by group. The disciples of John, why did they fast frequently? Or on a, I think we could even say they fasted on a weekly basis or on a multi-time-a-week basis even. Some of them maybe two times a week, three times a week. Some of them maybe just once a week, which is probably more than many of you fast in a given week. Why did the disciples of John, and if we want to think through that through, we think about who their master was, John. We can go back and we can read Luke 3, 3 through 18, or other parts of the other Gospels where we find what was John all about. He was about repentance. He was all about reflecting on your sin and not just a flippant reflection on your sin, but really examining deep down how you live and think and treat others. How is your love for God and love for neighbor being displayed in your life? 
and then repenting over your own internal hypocrisy. And so I I think it's fair to say that the disciples of John, generally speaking, were fasting for a good reason. They were fasting as they grieved over their sin and sought the Lord in prayer for forgiveness. And generally speaking, that's a good thing, isn't it? I think perhaps there was a misguided aspect to it. We'll come back to hopefully later this morning. (coughs) But the general motive of it was good. Repentance from sin, grief over sin, and turning to God. At the same time, we could say that the Pharisees, generally speaking, it wasn't probably as good of a reason. The Pharisees, by Christ's day, fasted also on a weekly basis, some of them multi-times a week, some perhaps boasting, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week and give of all that I have to the poor, right? That Christ isn't making up an absurd example. He's actually, in that parable of the two men praying, he's presenting us with a common habit that many fasted twice a week. Some fasted more than that. They probably made sure others knew that they fasted three times a week instead of just two like the rest of you or whatever the case might be. But this fasting on a frequent basis was a big part of their uh, weekly, their weekly devotion. And that developed. It developed especially during the exile. If you think about the Old Testament, there's actually, you might not realize this from the way people talk about fasting, promoting fasting, but there's only one day every year that Israel was commanded to fast. If you were the average Israelite, you could obey God and honor him and only fast one day out of every year. And you'd still be faithful or could still be faithful. And that was tied to the Day of Atonement. You had to fast on that day as you grieved over your sin. And as the priest brought brought on your behalf a sacrifice to the Lord. There were other times when Israel was commanded uh, on a particular instance, a unique instance uh, here and there, where the elders of Israel would call all the nation to a public fast. And then, of course, there were those who fasted individually, personally, and privately for a variety of reasons. But it really became a big thing with the exile. And I think it's not hard to assess, as we read the prophets, how this developed. Some people before the exile already had a false understanding of what was happening when you brought an animal for sacrifice at the temple. Instead of viewing it as, in my place, condemned this innocent one stands, it was instead a, I've brought God what he requires, now he owes me a relationship. He owes me a a, a friendship. He owes me forgiveness because I brought a sacrifice. It was a doing something to merit your status with God. Well, imagine if that's your viewpoint and suddenly you're in Alexandria 
or if you're in Babylon, or you're in any number of other places where the, the Assyrians placed the people of Israel over those years of exile. And you have no priest standing in front of the, the uh, altar to sacrifice for you in Jerusalem. So what do you do? How do you merit favor with God now? And fasting is an obvious thing. It's like a sacrifice that you can do without a priest. So you give up. And so people who used to bring a sacrifice every week or once a month or however often it was, started replacing those with days of fasting. And if I give up my food and pleasures for this day, it will, it will secure further my relationship with God. The prophets actually speak against this in a number of places. One place you can read about this is Zechariah chapter 7. But there are other places in the prophets as well. And yet by the time Christ was born, it had developed through the uninspired teachings of the rabbis of Israel into a weekly habit for many believers. A weekly habit, or even twice a week, if you were a good Pharisee, a Puritan, you would do it twice a week. Well, whether it's for the the good reason, repentance, or the bad reason, meriting something, here you have these two groups of the most religious people in Israel, and they all fast weekly. And so they have a judgmental attitude towards Christ's disciples. Here comes Jesus and his disciples It's not that they never fast. They would have fasted on the Day of Atonement, right, with Christ. He would not have broken that with his disciples. They would have fasted perhaps other times as well. But they didn't fast on a weekly basis. They didn't fast more often than they ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors. So how can they be close to God? Or at least think they're as close to God as we are. Well, why don't Christ's disciples fast frequently in their three years of seminary with Christ? A lot of guys when they're in seminary fast a lot more than they'd ever fasted before. You're, you're looking for ways to I don't know, kick your devotional life into a higher gear. Why aren't Christ and his disciples fasting frequently? And Jesus gives a very simple, short, and powerful answer, doesn't he? He says, for my disciples and me to fast twice a week, would be like the groomsmen fasting and weeping at the, at the party the night before or at the reception after the wedding. 
Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? I, I was reflecting on the most awkward experiences I've had at weddings. And it's always because one of two things often that go together. Because someone is drawing the attention away from the bride and groom. Or because someone's moping when they ought to be dancing. Isn't that true? The, the best man or the maid of honor who gets up and half the speech is, Oh, things are changing. My best friend. Or, or, the, or the best man who puts the bride down in his speech. So distasteful, these things. It doesn't fit, does it? The speech ought to be one of joy, not grief. Whatever you're sad about. And we're human, aren't we? You might be sad about something. You might be sad. This is the last of your friends who, like you, was single. And that can hurt. That can be hard might be a sibling and you know that life is never going to be quite the same as it was or you aren't going to be as close. You're not going to be that person's person the way you always were. There can be hard things there. Being a groomsman or a maid of honor at at a wedding or just a friend at a wedding. But the wedding isn't when you give in to that. Finish dancing, throw some rice. No, don't throw rice. Throw some bird seed or blow bubbles or whatever. And then go home and cry into your pillow. But don't let them know it. There's something distasteful. And Christ is drawing our thoughts to that reality. How distasteful to fast when you ought to be feasting. Imagine... Especially if, if any of you, some of you have thrown the wedding for your daughter, right? You paid probably way more than you wish you had for plates of food. Uh, or you can at least envision it, or maybe you've saved money up for if it happens, or, or whatever the case might be. Imagine how distasteful to the mother and the father of the bride if here come these plates you paid however much money for. And they, they go up to the head table and all the bridesmaids and all the groomsmen push the plate away untouched. What, what's, what's, is there something wrong with the food? No, we're fasting. This is just, it's so sad. That's what Christ is saying. Christ is feasting with sinners and sufferers, tax collectors, and uh, formerly demon-possessed people, how ought his disciples to be acting? How ought his disciples to be acting when they are with the bridegroom and the bridegroom says, pick up your mat and walk. And the man picks up his mat and he walks. When the groom says, Depart from him, and the demon departs from someone afflicted. How ought they to be acting 
When mom is dying with a fever. No, now she's handing us all food. Do we shove the food away? I'm fasting. Don't you know I'm in Jesus' seminary? I ought to be fasting, not eating, mother-in-law. No. No. These are moments for joy. The groom is here, and where the groom is, there is life, and there is joy, and there is healing. And where those things are, there ought to be celebration, not grief, not mourning. That's Christ's response. So while his apostles, his disciples, no doubt fasted on the Day of Atonement with him, might have even fasted at other times, the weekly habit was not that. The weekly habit was healing and forgiving and feasting. What a joyful reality. Here he is. And here's where my criticism of John's disciples comes in. Even with their good motive for repentance, remember how the Gospel of John presents John. He must increase. I must decrease. So that he says to some of his own disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what do some of his disciples do? They become the first of Christ's disciples. They change allegiance. They don't really. It's the most faithful way to be a disciple of John is to be a disciple of John's Savior and King. Some of them go to Christ. All of them ought to have gone to Christ. That would have no doubt brought John the most joy. If he found himself with no crowd and Christ with the whole crowd. Here he is with his disciples, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Savior who is not only a friend of sinners, but came to save sick sinners. Here he is, the physician, the shepherd who knows his sheep and they know his voice. Here he is, the light of the world and the light is the life of men. What kind of life ought they to have when basking in his light? Grief? Gloom? Or joy. Christ says it's obvious. They ought to be basking in the fellowship and the closeness, joyously hanging on his every word and not grieving. When will the disciples of Jesus fast frequently? Because there is the indication that they will fast frequently at some point, isn't there? He says in verse 35, But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. I've spent my whole life hearing pamphlets on fasting or reading books on fasting fasting or listening to sermons on fasting saying quite simply that this is just when Christ goes into heaven he's not with us and then the the Christian experience should include piety of fasting 
And I, I think that's missing on the, on the one hand, the frequent lifestyle of fasting aspect that I already mentioned. We'll talk about that more. I think it's also missing what Christ is saying to an extent. Because there, there's something about the way Christ talks here. Earlier in this week, uh, last week, when I started working on this text, first thing I do is I sit with a notepad and the, my Bible and nothing else, and I just write all the questions I have. And I kept coming back to, it feels too simplistic, what I've always been told, that this is a command that we who live when Christ is in heaven must fast as part of our piety. That's what I've always been told from this text. And something wasn't sitting right with that. It didn't feel like it fit with what Christ was expressly saying, especially in his parables in this text. And so I thought, well, I'll turn to the commentaries now and they'll tell me I'm wrong. Then we can move on with life. And while there are plenty of commentaries that say this is a text commanding fasting, in God's providence, the first two scholarly acclaimed commentaries I picked off the shelf agreed with me. That the point here isn't about whether Christians should and can rightly fast at times, but whether we ought to be fasting as a weekly part or regular part, an important part of our devotional life. And they point to these things, some of the things that stood out to me and then I found in these commentaries. The language he uses of being taken away from them is a violent word. Being taken away, is a, it's a violent word, suggestive often in scripture of someone taken away in death. In fact, The language Christ uses here is a strong parallel to something said in Isaiah 53, verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Now, throughout Luke, Jesus quotes Isaiah frequently about himself. And in other places, he paraphrases it strongly about himself. And perhaps this is one of those moments in which case... Part of what he's saying is, when I'm ripped away in death, then it is appropriate for my disciples to grieve and mourn and sorrow and fast. And that's what they did for three days while he lay in the tomb. They sorrowed and they grieved. The groom had been ripped away from them. But not only that, Perhaps we say it also applies to his ascending into heaven and being gone in that way. It also language that reflects something Jesus said the night he was betrayed. There in the upper room, he talks about a time when he will be taken from them. But do you remember what he says? I will not leave you, but I will send a comforter. The disciples fasted, they prayed, they devoted themselves strongly to these things. And then the day of Pentecost happened. And what happened to fasting 
as you read the book of Acts from that point on? What, what fills the book of Acts? Go and read it. Holy Spirit comes from Christ at Pentecost. And they were with one accord in each other's homes, breaking bread and fellowshipping around the meal. Day to day to day. On the Lord's day, they were together under the apostles' doctrine, that is, preaching and fellowship, the breaking of the bread in the Lord's Supper. Fasting doesn't appear anywhere there. It actually only appears once or twice in the rest of the book. It appears, for example, when appointing elders in a given city, In the appointing of them prior to that appointment, there was fasting and prayer over, is this the man called of God to be an elder here? It's one of the only times you find it in the book of Acts, after the day of Pentecost. In the New Testament, at large, the letters, how about commands that you, there are a lot of commands that you pray. There are any number of commands you read the word. Tend to the fellowship and the fellowship of the church that you worship. You know, I only found one direct command about fasting in Paul's letters, and it's not all the time. He tells husbands and wives there might be a circumstance in which you need to refrain from the marriage bed temporarily by common agreement and while you've done that dedicate yourself to prayer and fasting I hope we can agree that's not a weekly tradition Paul isn't saying fast from sex and food as married couples every week no it's a unique particular moment Now, this is why I started by trying to make a distinction between frequent fasting and fasting in general. Because everything I'm saying right now would make it sound like I'm saying fasting has no place in the Christian devotional experience. But what I'm saying is that this passage shows us it's not to be a defining element of the Christian devotion. When someone looks at your devotional life and they only get one word to describe it, what would that word be? If they were looking at the Pharisees or the disciples of John, they might say, grief. Or, or even guilt leading to fasting. They, they might say solemnity. But what is it to be when they look at the believer? On the day of Pentecost, Christ did ascend. 
but is he far from us? I was struck by this comment by William Hendrickson this week. If it be true that God with us, Emmanuel, spells joy for believers, should not God within us, the situation on and after the day of Pentecost, awaken in every child of God joy unspeakable and full of glory? Actually, that's referencing Peter, isn't it? Peter saying, you may not have been with us with Christ in the flesh, but by faith you are one with Christ and us, and our joy is unspeakable and full of glory. So whatever your fasting habits are, and this evening is really all the stuff I couldn't fit into this sermon. So you can join us at 5 p.m. The ornery part of me wants to say I'm not going to live stream and you have to join us, but I I won't be that ornery partially because of Barb. I won't be that ornery, but join us at 5 p.m. and we'll think about the reasons why Christians perhaps ought to fast at times how we view it, and things like that. But this text is saying something very clear. It's saying that those who are in Christ and have the Holy Spirit within them ought to have lives that distinctly look like the Spirit is within us. Like the bridegroom has not left us but he is with us to the end, even to the end of the age. Christ gives these parables, and we'll dig into them a, a little bit this evening as well, but they're pretty straightforward, aren't they? Christ is saying that there is something that ought to look different, that trying to throw a patch from a new piece of cloth onto an old piece of cloth I couldn't help thinking about, and I don't mean this negatively towards either of them, that pair of jeans Bruce wears that is more patches that Jody has lovingly put on there than it's actually jeans. It works for his personality, and and Jody was smart. She shrunk all the material first. So what Jesus says here isn't going to happen to Bruce. But that's what I'm envisioning. It stands out, doesn't it? Some of you are looking like you don't know what pair of jeans I'm talking about. So maybe you don't see Bruce during the week as much. He didn't wear them to church because that wouldn't have looked right to him, right? Or Jody wouldn't let him. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, glorious pair of jeans that's more patches than anything else. That's all I could think of as Jesus talks here. Did you notice that the parable is not only that unshrunk material on shrunk material will pull away, But he also says, this is a paraphrase, by the way, it just doesn't look right. That piece taken out of the new does not match. He's talking about our lives of discipleship. 
we have the new life in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwelling us so that we can cry out, Abba, Father, in prayer. Shouldn't that affect how our daily practice of devotion appears and how others see it as well? Christ talks about putting new wine in old wineskins. The new wine expands. But the old wineskin doesn't. Devotional practice of the rabbinic tradition, I, I won't even call it the Old Testament tradition, because it, it was added on as a burden to God's people by the rabbis of Christ's day. That old wineskin can't hold the gospel. The good news bursts out. And it ought to burst out of your experience and your life in a very tangible manner so that grief should not be the central emotion of your devotional life. It should be a part of it. But if you're grieving over sin and turning to Christ, Joy unspeakable ought to follow quickly and tangibly and in a way that controls your everyday devotion. I think that's what Christ is saying here. More than a doctrine of fasting, he's giving us one part of it. Fasting is not to be the center of your life in Christ. When we talk about the ordinary means God uses to bless and grace our lives, fasting can be one of them. We'll talk more about that this evening. But ordinarily, daily and weekly, it's the reading of the word, receiving the preaching of the word, Celebration of the, of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism and prayer. These should be the keystones of your walk with Christ. Keystones that are filled with joy and celebration. He did not give us, despite what the Catholic Church says, a sacrament of fasting to be practiced by his people until he comes again. But he did give us a feast to be practiced by his people until he comes again. Which after thinking about fasting, we will celebrate this evening. Christ brings joy wherever he is. And he is with us. So another commentator writes, Through the Holy Spirit, Jesus came to be near and with his followers until the end of the world. And therefore every believer is called upon to be joyful in him and not to live a life of fasting sorrow. A joyful, healthy, spiritual discipline 
indeed always remains the characteristic of a true follower of Christ. Is this true of you? Does joy and celebration in the gospel form the healthy habit of your day-to-day